Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, I'm excited to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, it's something that is uh, very precious to me that I get to share with you. Uh, I do suggest that you would have the ability uh, to write some notes down, uh, maybe pen, piece of paper, something, because you can capture uh, the many different scripture references that are going to be on the screen or in front of you uh, so that you can go back and, and look this over and, and check these things out for yourself. Pastor Chris uh, encouraged you uh, two weeks ago to, as we're studying through the life of Jesus, as we're studying through Jesus as Lord through the Gospels, that it would be great, great to be reading through the Gospels. Um, so that would be about 10 chapters a week, a little over a chapter a day, uh, so you can be checking in on what we're teaching as you yourself are exploring it in God's Word. John chapter 8 uh, opens up the story. Uh, John chapter 8 is Jesus teaching at the temple. The scribes and the Pharisees are the religious leaders, and they are around Jesus, uh, and they're having a discussion, an argument with Jesus. So let me set the scene for you. The disciples are there. The crowd is there. They're at the temple, uh, and they're in this argument, and they're going toe-to-toe with each other, kind of hit for hit, and they don't seem to be holding anything back. Uh, I imagine it's kind of like a, like a rap battle where uh, you have two people that are going at each other and they're kind of making accusations and digs at one another while the crowd around them is, is shouting encouragements and excited about the different points uh, that are scored as, uh, as one person seems to insult the next. And so the, the Pharisees launch their attack against Jesus uh, and they attack his credibility. They say, you have no credibility. You are a liar. You're making claims about yourself that are unfounded. In verse 13, they say, you're bearing witness about yourself, so your testimony is not true. Jesus responds, guys, that's simply bad logic. Just because I say it about myself doesn't mean it's not true. Uh, I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. Uh, your problem is that you judge according to your flesh. You make decisions out of ignorance, not out of truth. Uh, that's what Jesus accuses them of. And then he says, if you had paid attention, you would have seen that my father is also bearing witness about me. If you were to open your eyes, you would see it. And Jesus goes on to tell them that they think that they're free, but in fact, they're actually slaves. And it gets even worse. He tells them that they are illegitimate children of Abraham and that their true father is actually the devil. Jesus isn't holding anything back. And he calls them liars because their dad is the father of lies. So it must be, it must be genetic for them. And these are the religious leaders. This is in the temple, and Jesus is slamming them, yet they don't run. They stay engaged. They, 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 they come back at Jesus. So they hit back at Jesus, and they go on to say that Jesus is a half-breed. He's a Samaritan. And his, the accusation they level against him next is that the devil resides in him, that, he is, that, that the demons are inside of Jesus in verse 48. Now, just imagine this is all happening in the temple where people come like we gather for, for church. And this is like the, the, the religious leaders are like the pastors and they're throwing racist slurs back and forth and calling each other the spawn of Satan. I mean, this is, this is intense. I mean, who do they think that they are? Right? I mean, I think the, 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 um, the, last week, Pastor Eric said some things that maybe you thought were edgy. You know, he, uh, we saw in the video, we saw about Sauron, we saw Darth Vader in the video. Maybe that was a little bit edgy. We, we heard Pastor Eric say the word fart. We're like, oh my goodness. But, but like, this is them doing this at the temple, at church, Jesus and the religious leaders going back and forth. 
And in John chapter eight, the, 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 the religious leaders are there, they're arguing with Jesus. And they said to him, uh, who do you think you are that you would do, you would talk to us like this? Who do you think you are that, that you're greater than our father Abraham if you're gonna say this stuff to us? And at that moment, I'm gonna start over. I messed up that, that one part and then I'm scrambling to get back on track, which is just adding time. Good morning. I am excited to be with you, and I'm excited to share God's word with you. Uh, I do want to let you know it would be helpful for you to have some things in your hands to maybe take some notes, uh, to be studying along with us, writing down verses that you could go check out later on. Pastor Chris encouraged you two weeks ago uh, to be reading through the Gospels as we study Jesus as Lord. And we're going to be studying in and through and around the Gospels. Uh, And so if you read a little over a chapter a day, you'll be able to finish up the Gospels as we finish up this sermon series. And so you can be looking for the reinforcement of this teaching in your own personal study. So this morning, we're going to start in John chapter 8 fascinating story. It opens up Jesus's teaching at the temple. The scribes and the Pharisees are the religious leaders that are around him, and they are, they're in an argument. They're in a debate against one another, and so they're at the temple. The crowds are there. The disciples are there, and it looks to me kind of like a rap battle where you have two people that are insulting one another, going back and forth, and while the crowd around is cheering them on and excited about different, different points that they make and different insults that happen. And I would imagine the the crowd is tuned in to this argument that's happening as Jesus and the religious leaders are going toe to toe. So the Pharisees launch their first attack against Jesus, and they basically say he has no credibility. Uh, He's a liar, that he's making claims about himself that are unsubstantiated. Uh, So in verse 13, it says, you're bearing witness about yourself, so your testimony is not true. And Jesus uh, bounces back at them and says, this is just simply bad logic, guys. Uh, Just because I'm saying it about myself doesn't make it untrue. Uh, I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. Your problem is you're making judgments based on your ignorance, based only on what you're able to see. And if you pay better attention, you would see that the Father is also verifying about my identity if you had eyes to see it. And Jesus goes on to tell them that they're slaves, that they're not free. They think they're free men, but actually they're slaves. He tells them that they're illegitimate children of Abraham, and their true father is the devil. And he says that they, have, they take after their father in that way, that he is the father of lies, and they too are liars. But not to be outdone, the religious leaders, they, they, they push right back at Jesus. They don't run. They hit back at him and they say that he's a, he's a half-breed, he's a Samaritan, and that he is possessed by demons. That's why he's doing the work and talking the way that he's doing. And this is happening in the temple. I mean, this is happening like at their church service. They're coming together and this argument is happening. And, you know, last week we heard or we saw Sauron and Darth Vader and, and, and Pastor Eric said fart. And maybe that felt a little bit edgy. But, but this is an argument that is going on at the church service where the, the religious leaders like pastors are throwing racist slurs and calling each other the spawn of Satan. Right. But, but, but that's what's happening here. And so then they said to Jesus, like, do you think that you're greater than our father Abraham, that you can come in here and make these sort of accusations and say these things about us? Who do you think you are? 
And I think if you were making a movie, at that point, everything would just slow down because that's, that's the question. Jesus, who do you think you are? And with that question, the, the course of history changes. The answer to that question is everything. And it actually ends this particular argument. In fact, after Jesus gives his answer to that question, they're going to pick up stones to try and kill him. And this is what Jesus says in answer to the question, who do you think you are? In John 8, 57, 58, listen as I read it. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to throw it at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. After all the insults, after all the, the back and forth, Jesus says two words, ego me in the Greek. Jesus says, I am, and these guys go ballistic. Like, what is it about these two words? I mean, they're in the temple. They're going to throw rocks to, to destroy the speaker of these two words. What was it that was so offensive? Well, the answer is this. The reason that those two words struck home with them is that in those words, Jesus was claiming that he, in fact, was God. Jesus was saying that before Abraham was, I am. Notice he combines two assertions that on the surface don't seem to make any sense. Uh, before Abraham was, I am. Before someone in the past happened, namely Abraham, something in the present happened, I am. We're like, huh? Like, why, why, would that, why would that get them so upset? And it may be a puzzle for you and I, but it certainly was not for the Jewish leaders. They knew exactly what Jesus was trying to say. He was repeating the sacred name of God, the one that was used when God introduced himself to Moses. In Exodus 3.14, it's the tetragrammaton. It is Yahweh, which means I am. That's what God says his name is. So there's no misreading Jesus' tremendous claim here. And, and we know that's true because as demonstrated by their reaction, they want to stone him for heresy, for saying things that are untrue about God. Jesus aligns himself with the very nature of God, the God that these people have been worshiping for generations the God that had brought them to this land, the one that they claimed to serve, that was the God that Jesus was claiming to be. Now, John, who wrote this story uh, in this gospel, in John chapter eight, uh, and, and he made sure we knew this narrative about the religious leaders, he confesses to us uh, at the end of his book in John chapter 20, why he included these types of stories. And this is what he said. This was written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that through believing, you might have life in his name. John is compiling these stories. John is recording these heated exchanges so that years from now, we could look back at them. We can wrestle, wrestle with the life-changing facts about who is this man, Jesus. And as we wrestle with those facts, we too can come to believe in who he was, trust in who he is, and worship him as God. This sermon series that we're doing uh, is all about getting clarity on Jesus as our Lord. 
It's designed to reframe our thinking about the beautiful authority of Jesus. And I'm convinced that if we, if we get a better understanding, better knowledge of who he was, it will give us a, a better platform for trusting in who he is. And if we can really get our minds around what he did, we can have present tense confidence in what he will do. So we want to get to know what Jesus is like. And so last week, Pastor Eric gave a very profound truth about Jesus as a man, that Jesus was a man. And as a man, he was acquainted with all of our suffering. He understands our weakness, which makes him the perfect advocate, the perfect, the perfect uh, human representative between us and God. So Jesus is our mediator. And it was a very comforting word, an aspect of Jesus that makes him close and relatable so that as Jesus as Lord isn't one who's distant, but Jesus as Lord is a man who is close and he understands our needs. And we started our series on Jesus as Lord with that emphasis on his humanity because we knew it was accessible, right? We understand what it means to be human and Jesus understands what it means to be human so we can get close to him. But we wanted to start with something accessible because I knew that we were going to get to something that's a bit more challenging. And that's this week. We're going to get to the fact that Jesus claims to be God. And that's what we're going to do. We are going to look at these claims of Jesus because this word of Jesus claiming to be God, of Jesus's deity, this word challenges us. Because it is the truth that calls us to exchange our autonomy and our authority for his. C.S. Lewis said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left us, let that option open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. C.S. Lewis is making a very profound point here, and I'm not trying to twist your arm and put you into some kind of logical box into proclaiming that Jesus is God, but I want to take the time this morning to examine what does the Bible say about the divinity of Jesus? Does, Does Jesus and the gospel writers portray him as God? And I don't want you to take my word for it. Like, I want you to see it in the text. I want you to hear it from the words of Jesus. And not only the words spoken and recorded in scripture, but that the Holy Spirit would speak to you this morning about lifting up your eyes and seeing Jesus as God. Let's pray together. God, I ask that you would help us open our eyes to this beautiful truth of Jesus, who you are. So as we survey scripture, as we get into your word, I pray that you would speak to our hearts 
about the deity of Christ. Awaken faith in us. Amen. All right, so uh, I want to take the rest of our time here and quickly go through eight ways that scripture points to the fact that Jesus is God. These are like signposts. So you're moving towards a destination. The destination is the deity of Christ. And along the way, there are these signs that say, this is how far you are from it. This is what it looks like, right? So these are signs uh, about the deity of Jesus. So number one, the number one thing sign, the number one uh, thing that points to the divinity of Jesus is his attributes, So his attributes, the first one is he's omnipotent. Omnipotent means he's all powerful. He could speak and the wind and the waves would obey him. I can speak and my dog won't even obey me. But Jesus would speak and things would happen. I mean, he could multiply food, bread and fish, multiply it. He could change water to wine and not just any wine. He made good wine. They complimented the wine that Jesus made from water. He had the ability to forgive sins. I mean, just think about that. The, uh, the audacity of somebody who wasn't God to say, your sins are forgiven, that would be crazy. But Jesus could set aside an offense towards God. Why? Because he was God. And those that would reflect on his power, on his omnipotence, what they would say about him is, what sort of man is this? Like, who is this guy that he can do these types of things? That's what Matthew 8, 27 is all about. Second uh, aspect of his character um, is uh, not just his omnipotence, but his eternality. Jesus became a man, yes, but he had an eternal nature. He always existed. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, right? Jesus also said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was an eternal being. Uh, also, his characteristics, Jesus was sovereign, divine sovereignty. He was in charge of everything. Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Jesus was sovereign. Jesus also was immortal. He cannot die. And if he did die, he wouldn't stay dead. He actually said to them um, in John 2, 19, destroy this temple in three days. Guess what? I'll raise it up again. Or in John 10, 17 and 18, he said, I have the power to lay my life down. I also have the power to take it back up again. Jesus was immortal. Who does that? The answer is God. God does that. All right, the second sign that points to the deity of Christ is the the glory exchange. You've heard of the stock exchange? Well, there's the glory exchange. Jesus and God exchange glory back and forth. In John chapter 11, it's the story of Lazarus. And Jesus says, listen, we're going to go there. God's going to get the glory. And God's going to get the glory because the son of God will be glorified. And then God will receive it from me. I mean, this is a bold proclamation on the part of Jesus. God has declared in Isaiah 48, 11, that I will not give my glory to another. Yet Jesus and the father exchange glory back and forth. Our God is a jealous God. Uh, He's jealous for his own glory, yet Jesus ties himself as the son of God to the glory of the father. So Jesus lives to glorify God. The father delights in glorifying the son and they exchange glory back one to another. We as human beings, we don't get to do that. If, if, If there is glory that comes off our life, it is a reflected glory, like the moon reflects the light of the sun. But that's not Jesus Jesus gives his own glory and he gives his glory to the Father. Who does that? Only one who is God. 
So the third signpost in the Bible about the deity of Jesus is the beginning. In the beginning, Jesus. John 1 starts out, just like Genesis chapter one starts out, in the beginning. Those are the, those are the first three words. And so we read John one, we think we know. In the beginning, right? And we expect God created the heavens and the earth, except this time it says, in the beginning was the word, right? In the beginning, and then it goes into find, we find out that the word is Jesus. And it goes on to say that the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus was at the very beginning with God. What Matthew, Mark, and Luke take their entire gospels to build towards a conclusion of the deity of Jesus, John says it in the first 20 words, that Jesus is God. That word in the beginning was God, God in the flesh living among us. Jesus was in the beginning with God because Jesus is God. So that connects us to the next indication of his deity. Since he was in the beginning with God, what was his role there? He was giving life. That's what Jesus does. He gives life. Not only was Jesus in the beginning, John tells us in John 1 that everything that had been made was made through him, right? So Jesus was the author of life. John 5, 25 and 26 says, truly I say to you, An hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. They hear the voice of Jesus and they live. Jesus carries within himself life. He is the source of life. Who possesses powers to give life? The answer, God himself, right? And so then we get to our fifth signpost of the, of the deity of Jesus that we see in scripture. And this is a precious one. It's about the unity and diversity that exists in Jesus and exists in God. Let me explain what I mean. John ten thirty says, Jesus claimed that he and the father were one. John 14, eight to 15, Jesus answered the question, if you've seen the father, if you've seen me, then you've seen the father. If you've seen the father, you've seen me because me and the father, we're one. They are, they are intertwined. They are understood as one, right? So to see Jesus was to see the father. In John 17, Jesus is praying and he asked the father to make his people one, just like he and the father are one. They are one in unity and diversity. So meaning in diversity that they have different roles within the Godhead, yet they are one God. And Jesus says, make my people one God, one father, like like you and I are one. So, So Jesus wants us as a family to be one, like he and the father are one. I mean, this is, a, this is a great privilege, but it also is an incredible challenge where he wants us to be unified yet with, with different roles, one purpose, but with different gifts, different abilities. Jesus is asking that we would be one like he and the Father are one. And that points to the, the deity of Jesus that they would be diverse, but yet they would be one. All right, the sixth signpost of the deity of Christ um, is, what, uh, is what people used to call Jesus. It's, it's what, what they referred to him as. Uh, and he is called the Lord. The Greek word for Lord is kurios. And it is the word, it's always translated as Lord. 
Uh, sometimes it's used to address um, other people, like a superior, uh, a superior in rank. It could be roughly the equivalent of saying sir or madam, like to speak to someone of authority. Sometimes it was used as a language between master and slave, but always it referred to the person of highest rank, the person of authority, the person of power. So at the time of Jesus, um, there was a commonly used, uh, there was a commonly used Greek translation of the Bible. Uh, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. It was called the Septuagint. Now stick with me on this particular point. Um, uh, th- this is a powerful point. So the Greek Septuagint was around at the time of Jesus. People would read the Old Testament in the Greek language. And what they did was the, the name Yahweh, Lord, um, uh, El, or God, uh, all of those Hebrew names, Jehovah, would all be translated as Kyrios in the Old Testament in the Greek Septuagint. So these people around in Jesus's day would read these pages of the Old Testament that would say, Lord, that would say, Lord, that would say, Lord. And now they get the gospels, they get the New Testament writings, and that same Lord of the Old Testament is the Lord that is referred to as Jesus. So this Lord comes up 6,814 times in the Old Testament referring to God specifically, and about three to 500 times in the New Testament referring to Jesus specifically. So very clearly the, the word Lord is referring to Jesus as this God of the Old Testament. Now, let me give you two passages. I told you there's like three to 500. I'm just gonna give you two. Luke 2, nine through 11. The angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, the Savior, who is Christ, the Lord. Right, so this big crescendo of what's been, who's been talked about throughout the Old Testament, this Lord is now born to you. All right, one more, Revelation 19, 16. This is, this is the final defeat. Jesus is riding in to, to destroy the, the enemy and be the ultimate victor. And I want you to look at what is tattooed on his thigh, on his robe and on his thigh. He has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Jesus, that's what he was referred to as. He was referred to as Lord But what did Jesus call himself? How did Jesus refer to himself? Well, that brings us to our seventh signpost of Jesus' deity. Jesus calls himself the son of man. That's how he referred to himself. He actually does this 84 times in the gospels. And on the surface, son of man seems like it emphasizes what Pastor Eric talked about last week. Seems like it emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. Uh, But if we understand the context that Jesus pulls this nickname from, pulls this name from, we will understand it means far more than his humanity. It actually comes from the book of Daniel, a prophecy in Daniel chapter seven. And in this culture that Jesus was living in, they would have been very familiar with the prophetic writings of Daniel. Listen to Daniel seven thirteen and 14. And I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to, um, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I mean, just think of the audacity of Jesus to refer to himself as the son of man, right? He's of heavenly origin. He has authority over all peoples, nations, languages. He was claiming to be this heavenly ruler. So no wonder in Matthew 25, 65, after listening to Jesus talk about being the son of man, that the, the high priest tore his robe and yelled that the, he has uttered blasphemy, What further witness do we need? You've heard the blasphemy of Jesus claiming his divinity through the language of being the son of man. All right, if these previous seven signposts have not yet convinced you of of, of the overall message of Jesus uh, and his deity, uh, this eighth one has to. The Bible simply calls him God. Just simply says it right out. Theos is the Greek word for God, and throughout the New Testament, it predominantly refers to God the Father. But there are a few times scattered throughout, um, scattered throughout the pages of the New Testament where Jesus is referred to as the Theos. Jesus is referred to as God. And listen, this is not the kind of thing you get wrong. I mean, it's either lunacy, blasphemy, blasphemy or spot-on accurate to call Jesus God, like you don't, you don't, you don't say, you don't say to the guy pumping your gas, thank you, doctor, or, or the guy at the toll booth, you don't say, thank you, Mr. President, right? You don't, you don't get those titles wrong. They didn't get this title for Jesus wrong. Let me just give you two of them. Romans nine, verse five, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God overall blessed forever. Amen. Or Isaiah 9, 6, which was a prophecy referring to Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Different books of the Bible, different authors, but all with the same consistent message, Jesus is God. You might be thinking, okay, Greg, we got, we got the message. We hear you loud and clear. But aren't you really making a big deal over a small doctrinal point? Like, isn't this just a theological detail that is designed for, for the creeds or doctrinal statements? My answer is no, no, and absolutely not. I, I don't think we get it, to be honest. I, I, maybe we're growing in it, but... But, but I don't think Jesus is, his deity is an irrelevant detail. And, and, and see, the reality is we have a functional faith, right? Not just what we confess with our mouth, but what we actually live by, uh, what, we, what, what forces our decisions. That's what we truly believe. And I think the claims of Jesus', Jesus deity are actually offensive to us. Not because we don't confess them, not because we don't believe them in our mind that he is God, but because of what believing that he is God actually entails. Like, like the religious leaders of John 8, to embrace the deity of Christ means to displace our authority and our autonomy. That's what's going to happen. And if Jesus is a man, he can be comforting. He can relate to us. 
Like he can be God in the flesh, God, God like us, if Jesus is simply a man. But the fact of the matter is, he doesn't show up simply as a man. He shows up as a man, but also as God. He's the boss. He's the authority. He's the king when he enters our planet. So we're comfortable when he's, with, his, when, with his claims of deity if his claims of deity means he, he saves us from death. We're comfortable with his claims of deity if it, if it means that he deals with sickness uh, and he brings healing. But what about his claims of authority when he wants to be Lord over your comfort? What about, what about when he wants to be God of your finances? What about as God when he wants you to address issues of fear? What about when he asks you to have that conversation or to love that person that, it, that it's awkward for you or uncomfortable for you? Or what if he asks you as your God to give him your time, talent, and treasure? What, what about those moments? when Jesus is claiming his deity. Like with the scribes and the Pharisees, what Jesus does is he keeps pressing into every area of our humanity. And it's our responsibility as worshipers to say yes to his advancing authority in our lives and to worship him as God. And we're left either to worship him as God or to reject him. Those are the only options that we have. We either have to receive him or do away with him, or maybe I should put it the way the New Testament puts it, or we kill him. He leaves us with no alternative. If we reject him, we declare war on him because he is God and everything is his. And herein lies the problem. Where can we run from, 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 from the one who created all things? Where can we go from his presence? All of life is designed for his sufficiency, for his beauty. So when we say no to him, we can't, we can't just change churches. We can't just switch relationships. We can't just move to another state. We can't get away from the authority of his claims. Jesus advances on us with his deity because he is committed to bringing about wholeness. All of creation is made to worship him. And his entrance onto our planet as God was a rescue mission because he's unrelentingly committed to restore what has been broken. And his coming was not simply to secure for us an eternal home, but it was to announce that the king has arrived and everything in his glorious realm is going to come under his perfect and beautiful authority. All things are designed to declare either in their wholeness and redemption or in their judgment and rebellion and punishment that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the God of all. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him. He bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me conclude with this thought. Here is what I have found to be true over and over and over again. The more I cling to control of something, the more I am controlled by whatever I'm clinging to. The more I am committed to a certain outcome, a certain plan, a certain way uh, I think things ought to be, the more I am a slave to that outcome. 
I have made myself and my way the center of all things and all things orbit around my will. And and I'm not saying my will is necessarily sinister or evil, but the key is it's mine. Do you remember in the movie uh, Aladdin, either the animated or the realistic one, there's this scene where Aladdin's uh, advisor, Jafar, his plan is finally coming to fruition and he wants to be the greatest. He wants, he wants all the power and Aladdin is crafty and he tells him that, uh, that he is only as powerful as the one who gives him power. So the one who gives the power is the one that gets the true glory. And so the genie had given him his power. So he says, I want to be the all-powerful genie. But the trick is that that phenomenal cosmic power is in a itty-bitty living space, right? So what happens for him is he is held captive to his own lust for control. When we are committed to us, then all must bow to us and we are the most glorious ones in the universe. Now, that you might be saying, Greg, that sounds like such a huge overstatement. And it is, we don't hear people typically talking that way explicitly, but you do implicitly if you listen in. Right, from temper tantrums to being manipulative, we are trying to make ourselves the center of all things. I will be the most glorious one in this argument. I will be God over that person, this situation, that circumstance, this job, right? I I will make sure it functions my way. That's what's going to secure life for me. Whatever that thing is, it controls us. We do not control it. Our mind, our thoughts, our resources all go to secure it, and that is bondage and not freedom, The claims of Jesus' deity disrupt that commitment to my glory. He comes in as the one with the power and the glory, the God to be worshiped, and he displaces us. The opposite is true. I'm gonna close with this thought. The more I trust the absolute authority of Jesus, the more freedom I enjoy. When Jesus comes into one of my circumstances, like Jesus came into one of my circumstances just this week, and he asked me to give up control, right? He asked me to throw in the towel, to hand it over to him. And I wanted to manage it myself. And the way I wanted to manage it myself is I wanted to avoid it, right? I wanted to control it by ignoring it. But that was me seeking my own glory. But he's God, so I had to obey his leadership. And in the place of surrender to the deity and authority of Christ, I had to step in and deal with what I didn't want to deal with. And and the reality is the pain didn't go away, but it also didn't rule me. The difficulty wasn't gone, but the shame was. The object of fear was not eliminated, but it looked a whole lot smaller next to the divinity of Jesus. So how do you respond to the advancing deity of Christ? Well, you do it by worshiping him, by surrendering all to who he is. Jesus is God. He is not less than God. He is not partial God. He's not a demigod. He's not like Percy Jackson. He is God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, God. So last week we saw Jesus is a man like us. 
And, and, and in every moment of life, look to, to the God who knows you, that is your mediator between you and the Father. But also, you can trust him, you can have confidence in him, because this man, Jesus, who knows you so well, is also the God of all creation. Let's pray together. Jesus, in Colossians 1.19 uh, Paul said, for in him, meaning you, all the fullness of God was delighted, pleased to dwell in you. And so, Jesus, I'm asking that just like, the, the, just like God was pleased to dwell in you, I pray that you would be pleased to dwell in and among us. And I pray, Jesus, that you would lovingly knock on the doorways, the doors of our life where we are reluctant to give over uh, to your authority, the place where we don't wanna give over control. And I pray that you would keep advancing. Jesus, as God, you have every right to every part of us. So Jesus, by your grace, would you knock on that door? And in your mercy, I pray that we would open it so that the King of glory the God of all could come in and rescue us.